Hello everyone, welcome to You, Me, Them, Everybody. My name is Brandon Weatherby. This episode with Philippa Hughes is sort of based around her recent piece in Jen, What Four Years of Dining with Trump Supporters Taught Me About Polarization. Philippa is one of the biggest advocates for good stuff in Washington, D.C. It used to be art. It still is art, but it, it, she's also been doing these dinners uh, with people that don't necessarily believe in what she believes in on the political spectrum. And uh, that sort of got turned into a project that's been going on for a while. It's called Looking for America. All of this is worth your time. Philippa's pieces are always worth your time. There's a link to the piece in the podcast description. There's a link to what she's working on in the podcast description. Another thing that's in the podcast description is our Patreon account. Things have changed dramatically in 2020, and that's why in 2021 we now have a Patreon account. Please consider donating at you, me, them, everybody.com. It's in this podcast description. It's on our about page. Without further ado, Philippa Hughes. I mean, there's actually this whole thing around empathy mm-hmm. that I've been thinking about because, you know, it, it, that's part of my project, Looking for America, is like, how do we build more empathy? And there's actually a sort of a dark side to empathy because you can't, you, you can actually physically hurt yourself because you become too empathetic with the pain of and suffering of others. And so, like, people who are too empathetic are can't be nurses, for example. Mm-hmm. Um So uh, I've been trying to think like, maybe I'm not empathetic enough. (laughs) I mean, that tie, I think that ties directly to the reason why I reached out because I read your gen piece, what four years of dining with Trump supporters taught me about polarization. And you definitely come off as empathetic. And I think for the reader, for the first, I don't know, 75 to 90% of the piece, you think like, oh, maybe her empathy has gotten the best of her. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the way I kind of got around it is because I, I was reading this another piece, which I really should talk through this a little bit more. I, you know, I'm still kind of exploring this idea of it. Like, there's a difference between empathy and compassion. Mm-hmm. And I think what we should strive for is compassion, um, because empathy is more about your emotional responses to people, whereas compassion is about actually caring about other people. It's a kind of subtle distinction, but... I'm, I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time working my way through those concepts still. You mentioned in this piece that you are an atheist. Do you practice meditation? Do you, are you familiar with any other specific religions that you could call from to find some solace in that? You know, I, part of my problem with sort of religion is I just don't like being told what to do. I don't like structure. And so, you know, my mother is a, you know, she meditates, she's Buddhist, she, mm-hmm. you know, she really p- practices the, those philosophies and she's always like trying to get me involved in her work. And I resist, even though in a weird way, I think I are actually already do all of that stuff. I just refuse to sort of call it a structure. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. Do you think that's a rejection of your previous life? Oh, that's a good not in terms of like spiritual previous life, like you were reincarnated. I mean, like you used to be in the more corporate side of the world. Yeah. yeah no, outside. I, well, I mean, I did used to be much more religious too. So, you know, it's a rejection of my previous life in a lot of different ways, except that I've always bristled at being cast into a category. Like even as a child, I didn't, I remember like in high school, um, we had this thing in high school where, you know, like for Valentine's Day, you could buy a carnation and have it delivered to your, you know, a friend or whatever, a girlfriend. And I decided that I was going to do 
a dead flower delivery for Valentine's Day. And so I went around to all these florists and got their, you know, old flowers and then had people pay me to deliver old flower, old dead flowers to people they didn't like or as jokes or whatever. <laughs> anyway, I, I don't know. I always thought about that as like, oh, why do like why am I always trying to do a thing that's different from what everybody else is doing? I mean, it doesn't, you know, it's kind of fun, but is that really the track I should be on? <laughs> Let's say we live in bizarro world and your dinners didn't need to exist for the past four years. And we had a united country. We had a like a post 9-11, like we're Mm. all in this together. But instead of something horrible like 9-11, it was something positive. I don't know. Just hypothetically. What do you think you would have been doing the last four years if the world was flipped on X axis and it was a 180? I'd be writing. (laughs) I mean, that's honestly, it's like if if I didn't feel like I had to go out and save the world, I would just be writing because that is what I really, really want to be doing right now. Um, But, you know, that's a really good question because in it's certainly not wasn't perfect in any stretch. And in fact, now we know that, you know, the election of Obama wasn't the thing that solved all of our problems. Um, And but the the thing is, you know, we thought that the world was getting better because we elected a black president. Mm -hmm. And so we became complacent. And I feel like that was a contributing factor to what led to our current condition, our complacency. So I never want to believe, I I think, I think I'm getting to the point where I don't want to believe that everything is good, you know, is exactly the way it should be. We should never be at that point because it never will be. Because if we, if we get to that point, then we'll stop working for that better world. So you do mention that you just mentioned complacency. Obviously you are not complacent in the least. In addition to having these dinners, you were literally in Georgia the day before the insurrection. You were work. you were a, were you a poll worker or a poll watcher? I was a poll watcher. Poll watcher. Um, yeah. And so that's not complacent whatsoever. You're literally getting out the vote. You're making sure everything is legit. And you're saying that that's why the progress from the 2008 election sort of went away. I would beg to differ. I think that you, you confront this a lot with the people you're eating with in your dinners. Maybe it's the consumption of media itself and yeah. not getting people to vote or not getting people to vote whatsoever. If mm-hmm. you're fed this daily whatever, you're fed this daily echo chamber, you're going to believe that. And so no matter what anybody says, even it's it's all anecdotal to you. Therefore, what could anyone do to prevent any of this? Oh my gosh, this is the question of our times for sure. Um, I was just reading this piece in the New York Times this week. Oh, I, I literally was just reading it before we started talking mm-hmm. about um, a guy who wrote a book around the attention economy mm-hmm. uh, back in the mid 90s. And basically he predicted what was, hap- was going to happen today. And that is that, you know, our attention is a commodity. And media politicians are trading on our attention. And the more attention we give them, the more power we give them, the more profit we give them. And so this is, you know, we need to be paying, we we need to be paying attention to where we pay attention because we're giving away the one thing that we have, you know, our commodity, the one thing we have of value that, you know, it's, it, 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 and we don't think of it that way because we think of it as like, you know, the air we breathe is as just, it's just there, mm-hmm. but it's being commodified. 
and you, we, we're seeing that right now. And it's really scary because we're just giving it away. Do you think you've been sadder or happier over the last four years? Oh, wow. That is a good question. You know, in a weird way, I've been happier because I feel alive and like I'm, you know, motivated and doing stuff like I'm doing the most as much as I possibly can. So in that sense, you know, it feels very fulfilling to to know that I'm trying and I'm, I'm doing my part. So then therefore these dinners and the bigger project looking for America, that is worth your attention then. Absolutely. Okay. It's 100% worth my attention. Um, and, you know, a, kind of like a tangential point to that is I think friends of mine, you know, on the left who are constantly focused, giving their attention to complaining about Trump and and the, the garbage that he spews, they're sadder because they give their attention to a thing that yeah. doesn't deserve their attention. So, you know, it really does matter where you pay attention. Do you think you're going to, I know that you're afraid of, not afraid, I shouldn't, I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but you said the 2008 election complacency led to the last four years. But <laughs> are <laughs> you at all hopeful that the majority of Americans maybe won't be watching Newsmax, Fox News, MSNBC, and maybe less attention will be paid to the noise and more attention will be paid to everything other than politics? Or do you think that's even possible? That's a good question. Um, I am actually in the middle of helping to form a like a mini summit on disinformation. We're calling it the Symposium on Truth. And so we're trying to explore the answer to that question. I don't know. I, I Sometimes I feel wildly despair, despairing, <laughs> because I don't know how we're going to reverse that trend without, you know, basically oh, you know, there's this one guy who calls it, he thinks we need to have like basically the equivalent of a constitutional convention on big tech mm -hmm. because big tech basically like runs our country now. And so we need to like have a convention to decide like, what do we, how are we going to turn that ship to, to take away the power that they have? Like they're literally running our country. They're making the decisions about who gets to speak and who doesn't. Um, so Honestly, sometimes I feel a lot of despair. It, it's okay. hard for me to have hope right now. I found this piece of yours that you wrote for Jen via Medium, via LinkedIn. Okay? So mm -hmm. that's part of big tech. <laughs> Touche, Brandon. Touche. I, I, I legitimately dislike LinkedIn. It makes me feel bad. I am, have not been on Facebook regularly in four years, I only use it to promote a show. And if there's no live shows because of a pandemic, I'm not on Facebook. I use Twitter to find things like grants and jobs and things like that. So Twitter is a little bit less annoying to me. Um, I use Instagram essentially for an art project and that's it. I have lied to Facebook for 15 years now. As soon as I got it, I liked every single thing that was suggested to me. Therefore, the entire time my algorithm has been meant for someone that doesn't exist. Does this make sense? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't think I'm the norm. I've never I've never revealed anything personal like that I wasn't already sharing on a stage on these platforms. My point is this. It's all opt-in. And mm -hmm. you are 100% right. The, the majority of people that use it may feel like they're boxed in or may feel like it's controlling everything. 
but it's still an opt-in system. Mm-hmm. I, all that to say is another opt-in system is bars. And the easiest <laughs> way to fix Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc., is if you just run it like a bar. Now, if you want to have a bar, you can't yell Nazi stuff. That's just not appropriate. You can't, you'll get kicked out. You're kicked out as soon as you say anything like Nazis had a lot of good ideas. You're out of the bar. You can't, we can't sell drinks to this guy. He's crazy. That's super simple stuff like that. Just shut it down. You don't have any of these problems. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I, I want to make one kind of fine point to say that actually I do have a little bit of hope for big tech because like the fact is that I actually love social media because I get to use it for good and not evil. And I think that's the problem is like, how do we regulate the evil part, the yelling fire in a, you know, in a theater part? Sure. But like, that's so, like, why are we even talking about regulation? I know kicking people out is regulation. Just like make it that simple. Nothing needs mm-hmm. to be that complicated. And maybe yeah. it's just so binary. Maybe it's because I'm a straight white male in America that I think this is like the easiest way to fix almost everything. But it's, it's really difficult to make your own Twitter or make your own Facebook or make your own social network. And yeah. if no one wants to host it because you're full of Nazis, you don't get to host it. That's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think maybe, maybe I think that's why we need to have a really big conversation about is, is that the right approach or, you know, and it, it is about the economics of it. Um, there's this guy, Tristan Harris, who runs the center for humane technology. And he talks about like, if you just took away the profit motive, or change the profit incentive, it would fix a lot of the things that are wrong with Facebook, et cetera. Oh, sure. um, you know, they make money from ads. So they make those algorithms to make more money from the ads. Like that's just kind of the bottom line about how it works. So we need to change the profit motive, I think is ultimately the goal here. And it is about Facebook. I was at this other panel where they were kind of comparing how much disinformation is out there mm-hmm. You know, there's a kind of this little data driven chart and like Facebook is actually just magnitudes of order, orders of magnitude ab- above any other social media platform in oh, yeah. terms of the amount of disinformation. So like it is about Facebook ultimately. But like maybe once again, this is to me just so easy to stuff. You can't lie. You can't just make up shit and yell it out. It's just, you get, you're gone. <laughs> you don't get to do that. That's just how it is. It's a bar. Yeah. I know this is a pointless rabbit hole, and I'm sorry about that. Did you feel hopeful after leaving Georgia? It seemed like you did, um, for obvious. You, I clear, not clearly. You are a Democrat, (laughs) so you're (laughs) happy with the Georgian outcome. Were you at all surprised with the Georgia outcome? Oh my gosh, I was shocked. I, I thought we would win one. I thought we would win the Warnock race for sure, but the other one, I was like, whoa, like. It, you know, it, it was a squeaker, but mm-hmm. that was amazing. I was just so excited. Do you think that that bodes well for the country because now it is a democratically controlled House and Senate? It's an administration that has clearly learned a lot from the mm-hmm. first two years of the Obama administration. Um, and there is attempts to work with both sides and even if there's not the uh the democrats are trying to get stuff done at the exact same time there's no pause in this mm-hmm. the reason i mention this is because you get you talk about polarization in this piece do you think that this will be a more polarized 
country due to the Senate or a less polarized stuff, less polarized Senate because stuff could actually get done. Does this make sense? Yeah. Okay. I mean, two things on that. I mean, one, I, I saw that, um, I think it was the press secretary said, we're not even talking about Trump. We're not even thinking yeah. about Trump. We're just getting our work done. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what needs to be said and done. Like, forget about that guy. He's gone. Like, moving ahead. What needs to be done? So in that sense, I feel very hopeful. Um, but, you know, we have very slim margins. And 2022 could just upend everything. Could e Everything could be easily upended in the, in the midterms. And so, you know, I was, like, super stoked for, like, 10 days after <laughs> the inauguration. And now I'm like, oh, my God, like, we've got so much work to do for the next two years to make sure that we can maintain, you know, this bare, slim majority. Mm. You know, we, and, you know, it was kind of like 2016 too. Like at the end, at the end of the day, Biden won the election by like 80,000 votes in a few swing states, sure. you know? So I, that's really scary. Yeah. Another way to look at it is more people than ever voted. Yeah. On both sides. That's true. Like, that's actually, that's, that's okay. Because do you think the majority of people that voted for the Donald would vote for any Republican? No, I, if it's a cult of personality, the personality really matters. And if the personality has gone, I don't see turnout doing this again in four years. I think you're you're right. The turnout probably isn't going to be as high in terms of the Donald factor. But a lot of people don't necessarily vote for the Donald. They vote against Democrats. Like that's what tribalism is about. I They're like, eh. hold on, completely, completely, completely agree. Mm -hmm. But. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I do think it's a lot more difficult to have a race-based argument when the guy at the top of the ticket is a straight white man. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I, it's I not know. a good thing, but it's it's really hard to say that uh, they're, they're, they're changing the country when it's the oldest president and he's the most old and white. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I'm just worried that, you know, in four years, you know, what could be really devastating for us? Nikki Haley is like the nominee for the GOP. Now, what are we going to say? You know, like somebody smarter than Trump. Thank goodness Trump wasn't a smart dude or, you know, we'd be in a much bigger pickle, so to, you know, to say the least. Like, what if they get somebody smart? What if they get somebody I don't know what if like Tom Cotton. I don't know. I'm just really worried about if you think Tom Cotton they learn too. Could, could hold a rally and anyone would show up. <laughs> <laughs> I never want to be on your side because that's the losing side, ma'am. It's that's the thing. Like you, you gotta have to have a call to personality if you're trying to run the exact same way. I'm. You might be right. I don't know. I'm not gonna argue with you on this one because I'm just kind of like still reeling from you know this, these last four years to well be let's honest. talk about the last month in fact uh, so yes 5th, exactly january 6th you've you're you've been in washington dc a long time mm -hmm. and I, based on your piece it's fair to say that you never thought this type of thing would happen mm -hmm. how do you feel right now we're almost a month away from it um there's still a ton of barricades up around the house around the capitol sorry um do you want to leave? Are you glad you're here? Where do you wish you were? Oh my gosh. No, I, I want to be right in the action, frankly. Like okay. I never, at this point, I never want to leave. I want to be able to, anytime there's a march or a protest or a rally, I want to be able to walk right down there and be part of that and 
that I think that's one of the most exciting things about living in our city is I can do that. Mm-hmm. You are are you still near 14th and you? Mm-hmm. There yeah. were protests um, throughout the summer uh, about the murder of George Floyd. Lots of them were around 14th and you. Did that give you a renewed sense of purpose for what you've been doing? Or did you think that that was a similar to an insurrection moment where like, why am I talking to these people if they can't just ha- understand the obvious thing that black lives do matter? I mean, I went to as many protests, BLM protests as I possibly could. And they're actually still happening. I, you know, they're still happening in my neighborhood anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think that the sustained protest has to keep happening. Like that kind of pressure has, I wish they were bigger still um, because we've got, like, I feel like they're so small now that they're, they're not getting the attention that they were getting over the summer when they were really big. So I, You know, this is the complacency problem that I worry about is people start getting tired. They, you know, we're not sustaining the pressure like we should be. Where do you think, okay, what should be going on then? Well, I mean, you know, I was thinking about like, there ought to be a giant rally protest like every week. Like we, like we ought to be filling the streets all the time because now everybody just like puts up their little sign in their window that says black lives matter as if they've done enough and we haven't done enough like you have to literally physically show up you have to literally make the phone calls you have to do something and posting on facebook and putting up your little sign in the window isn't enough what what do you think would be more powerful hypothetical anyone that's under the age of 30 uh, changing the privacy settings and changing the Facebook settings for everyone in their life that's over 60 or <laughs> all those people going to protests. What, what do you mean changing the privacy Go settings? Go in and block certain pages that you know just spread misinformation. Mm-hmm. Change the likes that spread misinformation. Essentially alter the, the TV station that they're watching where they can't watch lies. Oh, oh, you mean like do it for your, your, yeah, do it for your parent who doesn't maybe understand the computer as well as you do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a really good idea. (laughs) Actually, that's a great idea. I think that would be much more effective than a weekly giant protest that gets people excited. I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, I think that if we could change the culture around, I mean that was that we we could literally change our culture by doing that. Brilliant. I like it, Brandon. I'm not trying to negate what you've been doing. I think what you've been doing is really important mm-hmm. and good. But were you able to change anyone mind anyone's mind at any of the dinners over the last four years? You know, everybody always asks me that, and I I feel very frustrated by this question um, because the idea. I'm not criticizing you at all, but you know (laughs) that the purpose of the dinners isn't about persuasion. I mean, it is truly about understanding because at the end of the day, like, you know, we're, if you, we're not, we're not going to change people's minds. Like in fact, in a healthy democracy, it's really important to have opposing opinions. It is really important to have debate. And so trying to get everybody to think like you isn't the point. The point is to understand so that we can get, toward solutions that are you know good for everybody not just for one side maybe the question should be rather than were you able to change any opinions were were you able to establish a shared set of facts well okay that's a tough question too because 
Yes, and. I mean, disinformation and misinformation has actually gotten worse. And so one of the struggles I felt from you know 2016 when I first started doing this to now is that it's actually has gotten harder to have these conversations because we the the starting point of facts is is actually getting worse it's getting more disparate so this is sort of a question that i'm kind of in the midst of trying to figure out the answer to because you're absolutely right we're it's hard to have a conversation when you're starting it in completely different information spheres mm-hmm. well good luck <laughs> <laughs> Are you gonna, this are doesn't you, sound hopeful at all, does it? <laughs> well, your piece ends with hope. Your piece ends yeah. with hope. You're yeah. not a fool. And you're glad that you've done this. Are you, are you going to continue doing it? Oh, yeah. yeah. The project um, is... What, is there an end date for the project? I guess not because, you know, here's the thing. Like, it took decades for us to get to this point. So it's probably going to take decades to get us out of this mess. So, no, there is no end date. I am not trying to sound callous to the victims of 9-11, but... I would have thought that a daily 9-11 death toll would be a mm. super big deal that maybe would unite the world. But I was wrong. Yeah, I know. Shocking. It's really shocking. Yeah. Um, thank you for doing this. Uh, people could find you no longer at Pinkland Project, but um, yeah, Looking well, for America is still going. Um, yeah, cur- I, so I'm kind of switching over to um, a new project. I call it Curiosity Connects. Us. Okay. And so that's sort of going to be more of an umbrella for the art plus cultural plus political work. You, Me, Them, Everybody is made by me, Brandon Weatherby. Our theme music is by Daniel Knox. Our art is by Jillian Ron. You can hear all 13 years of shows at you, me, them, everybody.com. If you're listening to this in Spotify or on iTunes, the last year of episodes are available uh, with some sprinklings of the other ones. If you want the rest of the catalog, which features over 700 episodes, you meet them, everybody.com. Our Patreon page is on our about page. It's all there. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff at sign Y M T E. Thanks for listening. I'll hug the places that you've been sleeping. Friends and 